Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 17th of May, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Call News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me via video link, we've got David Scott, uh, Debbie Evans, and uh, Alex Thompson. Welcome to all three. Now, we're going to get kicked off here with, uh, well, Rishi Sunak at the Council of Europe. Now, before we just uh, discuss this, uh, Alex, I'd just like to get your explanation of the difference with what the Council of Europe is, because this is not related to the European Union. No, it is older than the European Union, Mike. The Council of Europe was set up at British instigation just in the uh, immediate post-war years at Sir Winston Churchill's personal insistence. And it was Britain and America making sure that continental countries lived up to democratic norms. And they set up, of course, the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, which has nothing to do with the EU. And it's a legal order all of its own. Okay, thank you for that. So uh, let's uh, see Rishi as he arrived. Uh, sorry, let's see Rishi as he arrived uh, yesterday. Um, and uh, well, he was introduced, of course, or, uh, uh, you know, he was uh, uh, brought in and uh, given the handshakes and the hugs and the rest of it. Uh, and uh, well, what was his main focus? His main focus was Ukraine, as we're going to see in a second. Uh, but Rishi was there. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen was there. Uh, Olaf Schultz was there, Macron was there, of course, the usual suspects was there. Uh, but as we mentioned on Monday's, progr Monday's program remotely, uh, was Vladimir Zelensky, and he got the, uh, the, the leading uh, speech to make uh, while he was on his uh, latest begging mission for uh, money and weapons. Um, so look, let's just have a look at uh, what Rishi Sunak had to say, or a, a listen to what Rishi Sunak had to say. Addressing a huge crowd on the streets of Strasbourg in 1949, Winston Churchill, one of the founding fathers of this council, spoke about le génie de l'Europe. He was talking about what makes our continent so successful, the values of freedom, democracy and the rule of law. The same spirit we've seen again and again that led Vaclav Havel to broadcast his messages of freedom during the suppression of the Prague Spring, that brought down the Berlin Wall, and that leads Ukraine to defend its sovereignty with such valour, inspiring us to stand with them all. The Council of Europe has nurtured that spirit for three quarters of a century, and it must do so again now because today we are facing the greatest threat to democracy and the rule of law on our continent since before the Treaty of London was signed. With Russia waging a war of aggression on European soil and China growing in assertiveness, the world is becoming more contested and more volatile. The challenge to our values is growing and the moment to push back is now. So there you go. We're going to push back now. David, I'd like to know uh, what your thoughts are on what he means by our values, because I'm not sure that my values necessarily would be in line with in alignment with his. Well, this is the thing. They keep doing this, Mike. Our values, British values, European values, and they never specify what are these values. You'd left to fill it in because this is a rhetorical device. You'd expect to fill in your values in that gap that he leaves without any explanation, and, and then you'll feel like you're on board. That's, that's what he's trying to do. He's not being specific about what the values actually are. And I also think that, that suggesting that Europe has a, has a long history as a shining light for liberty is, shall we say, stretching it a bit. The traditional British view is uh, Europe was a bunch of hammer throwers, and that's where all the trouble came from, and we were a shining light. Of liberty. This is going back a bit, but uh, cast your minds back. And um, Europe was uh, had tendencies towards totalitarianism and centralised control and oppression. I actually thought that was a story, but uh, maybe I've been reading different history books. Uh, that's well. Who knows? I suspect you have certainly different to the ones he's been reading. But anyway, uh, he went on then uh, to sign, of course, because why not? Uh, the register of damage uh, caused by the aggression of the Russian Federation against Ukraine. Uh, but then the other talking point, which was very much secondary in his opening remarks, uh, was the issue of migration. Um, and uh, well, he met up with Ursula von der Leyen to try and he's trying to to get some kind of agreement with the other European uh, leaders uh, 
about the issue of migration um, across the English Channel. But of course, there's another migration that's going on uh, as well. Uh, and Seymour Hirsch has been talking about this uh, in his latest uh, post on his Substack, uh, the Ukraine refugee question. Uh, Ukraine's neighbors push for Zelensky to pursue peace as millions of displaced people flow into Europe. Um, so Alex, just be interested in your thoughts on this because uh, uh, Hirsch is very much saying that uh, Eastern European countries, uh, and this is reflected by the way, just anecdotally by uh, people that I've been speaking to in Poland and other places, uh, that th there's, uh, the, the uh, willingness to accept the continuing stream of people into these countries from Ukraine is long past uh, being acceptable to them. So it seems like the political pressure is building and some voices within these countries are demanding that there's a move towards some kind of peace deal. So while the focus, at least as far as Sunak is trying to maintain it, is on uh, people coming across the English Channel, there's a bigger issue in Europe as a whole. There is, Mike, and the same east-west fault lines and shifting of that fault line is discernible in the Council of Europe, which we just covered, and in the EU and in NATO. Uh, a quorum of powerful, economically powerful, and usually more populous Western European nations can insist on a certain strategy and say this is Europe's democratic will, and the Eastern European states will often like it or lump it. But on this uh, matter, the fatigue we saw was already setting in in the, the western half of the continent last year when people realised that not every Ukrainian migrant to the west was a genuine needy refugee by any means. Uh, and that is now reaching Slavic and otherwise fraternal countries seen from the Ukrainian perspective. Poland right down to Bulgaria. Uh, you see a, a large number of uh, refugees uh, are either being encouraged voluntarily or semi-obligatorily through stopping of benefits being uh, had it, having it suggested to them that they should turn back. There has been a spate of uh, the usual clips of ungrateful migrants. One that was doing the rounds last week was, an, as, far, as far as I can see, very genuine uh, clip of a tearful young Ukrainian woman saying, I can't believe that I have to work in Europe. Why don't you just give me the money so I can buy $400 bracelets? This wasn't comedy. It's actually happening. Mm. Uh, that, well, that is true. That's, that's what I'm hearing as well. Um, okay, let's uh, move on, change the subject, and welcome Debbie to the program. And Debbie, uh, MHRA board meeting yesterday. Yes, thank you. Good afternoon. Well, yes, the MHRA board meeting was extremely interesting for very many reasons. And um, can I just encourage everybody to tune into Extra today, because I've been promised that we can talk about this in length, because there's so much to say about it. But very briefly, my journey to the MHRA board was interesting. So just a couple of slides, just to flip through really quickly. Um, you'll see that the MHRA on its website, um, they show the up and coming events and they also publish an email address and a phone number. Now, I didn't get my link to join the MHRA board meeting and I normally get it two or three days prior to, to the meeting. So when I didn't receive it, I was quite concerned. So I emailed them initially. So I've got a screenshot of some of my emails and I just encourage you to freeze the screen. It's very simple. Where's my link? Uh, they come back and say, we're very sorry uh, that the link was delayed. And then they go to the lengths as well of sending me another email to make sure that I've received the link. So there's a couple of screenshots of my emails that you can just freeze the screen and have a look. But I, when I didn't get a response initially to my emails, I made the phone call to the number that they showed on their website. And it, I couldn't believe what my phone was, was flashing up. And it flashed up clockwork pharmacy vaccine, travel vaccinations. So I thought, but the phone was answered, MHRA. So I went to look at clockwork pharmacy and sure enough, there are the links, contact MHRA. And it also gives a reference there to an HI Weldricks Limited. So then I went on to look at HI Weldricks Limited, and I find that yes, it's HI Weldrick Limited is a green tick approved uh, license to sell medicines from the following websites. It's tied into the MHRA, as you can see on the top left of the screen. So I'm just throwing that out there because I haven't done too much research into that as yet. And I want to get onto the, the board meeting, obviously, but that was just my journey to the board meeting was different from my other board, from my other board meetings. So 
The board meeting was um, held yesterday um, and it went on for two and a half hours. It was a very interesting board meeting for many reasons. It was different. I believe that possibly um, last month when we interviewed Cheryl, maybe somebody's had a meeting and the rules have been changed because it was extraordinary as I was watching it. Um, I don't normally look at the chats on Zoom, but four messages popped up in my chat box. I mean, to anybody that hasn't been on Zoom before, they probably wouldn't know what the chat box was. But I went up and there was this weird little message saying that no one was allowed to record or take screenshots or, or um, basically share anything from the meeting, almost like the public can't share the meeting. Um, and it was very interesting because a later question was about transparency, but maybe we'll come on to that in extra. So my takings from the MHRA board meeting was that, uh, and thank you so much to all the UK viewers who were watching. I'm not going to name you because that wouldn't be fair, but thank you because I've received their feedback as well. And all of us felt that June Rain was extremely feisty she was very assertive. We felt that Stephen Lightfoot was very defiant. And I felt um, in this board meeting as though there was a little bit of intimidation between the screen, but the body language was, was different. Um, it would appear that the MHRA are absolutely hungry for our data, 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 data. And what I took from this is every time we give them our data, we are enabling the MHRA to enable the industry, pharmaceutical companies, to accelerate the new or novel, experimental, whatever you take from that, products down the line into our bodies. What I took from the MHRA board meeting was that they were very, very keen to get people applying for clinical trials, to become a global regulator, they need data. They need all the information to become the global life sciences regulator. Without data, they have nothing. What was revealing was that only 37% of doctors' surgeries are signed up to the CPRD register. That means that your data, if your doctor's signed up to CPRD, your data goes straight to the MHRA. They are desperate for more GPs to sign up. Please go to your GP and ask if your data is being shared by the CPRD data um, register. If it is, you might want to withdraw your consent and your permission for your data to be shared, or you may even want to change GP. Similarly, they are really short of staff. So any clinical trial applications that are coming in aren't being processed properly. And Mark Bailey from NIBS was really put under scrutiny because he was asked some very difficult questions. Well, if only half the clinical trial applications are coming in, why have you got so many backlogs? And he couldn't really answer. But the industry seemed to be a little bit worried about the UK's ability to fulfill this ambition of becoming global regulators. So I saw the MHRA very much on the fly. They are absolutely hungry for data. Um, many of the questions uh, that were posed to the board weren't being answered, and that was a complaint. Um, and also, I think they are using real-world data. They want to use real-world data. Now, because obviously um, I wasn't able to record, uh, luckily for me, I do shorthand. So I just want to very quickly um, just read out Stephen Lightfoot's Last comment as he concluded the board meeting. This is verbatim. I conclude main session for the board. Does that imply that there's another session, maybe a private session that the public aren't aware of? He goes on to say, I remind the purpose of the MHRA is to protect and improve public health. And we will continue to do that by enabling scientific innovation by accelerating patient access to new, safe and effective products and to strengthen our patient safety and surveillance systems. Now, there's a lot there and there was a lot more in the meeting that I know that we'll discuss in extra, but um, my big takeaway was the MHRA 
appear to me to be on the defense. They appear to me to be anxious to get our data. And they even appeared, possibly my perception, my opinion, they appeared a little angry that they weren't seeming to fulfill their targets to use real world data in an international world with which to become the international global regulator. So those were my takeaways from the MHRA board meeting, but plenty more to come. Brilliant. Thank you very much for that, Debbie. And then the question, David, is uh, if they're struggling to recruit people for clinical trials, is it any surprise when the people that uh, have effectively been the recipients of a clinical trial uh, have been getting injured by the uh, jabs, uh, but apparently nobody's listening? Well, this has been a problem, of course. Now, we, we reported on Monday uh, on the uh, the event that the Scottish Vaccine Injured Group had in Glasgow and the, the, the good mainstream uh, press coverage that they were getting. Um, but uh, yesterday in the Scottish Parliament, there was a debate, basically uh, a, a motion of thanks for the vaccine and for saving us from for COVID and a thanks for all of the medical professionals who, who saved us from this terrible disease. That was the tone of it. Um, and some of the Scottish Vaccine Injured Group decided uh, to go along and see if they could get their voices heard as well. Does the government recognise that vaccine injuries happen? And I am a leader of the Scottish Vaccine Injured Group. It's time for this government to actually stand and look after the people that have been injured like myself. And I will remove myself. Here are some flyers. There are many ways that you... That's fine. There are many ways you can get in contact with John Mason. You know who we are. There is a leaflet. The Scottish Vaccine Injured Group will this government recognise us. Thank you. Malgin, thousands have been left in the UK. Thousands have been left to rot. I've spent £7,000 to get my life back. And me too. I've been sick for almost two, more than two years and nobody has listened. And we represent a large group of people who, as some of them, can't even leave Sorry. their beds. They're so sick. We need your help. Sorry, we need to... We'll leave these here. Right, ladies, you have to leave, OK? Thank you. So you heard there from that was uh, Ruth Rafferty and uh, John Watt, um, uh, who have been doing sterling work um, with with many others in the Scottish Vaccine Injured Group. Now they managed to get the the group um, recognised as a core participant of the inquiry into COVID that's being run, not yet really started or underway, but it's about to be run by the Scottish Government. It's an independent inquiry, of course, uh, but its terms of reference mean that vaccine injury will not be considered, um, which is, well, actually inexcusable in my per personal view. So this was uh, what they said from the balcony. Uh, the next clip is what the public saw on the main broadcast, the main live stream from the Parliament. Minister, I can, give you, I can give you time back for both those interventions. I'm, I'm going to suspend, suspend proceedings. So less information available to the public there. The feed was cut quite early and everything was suspended. They came back very quickly because the people left the balcony. There was, you saw them being ushered away by security um, and uh, hurried away, I would say. They weren't really given a chance to express themselves particularly fully. Um, and the minister responsible uh, said this. Oh, sorry, I think we've got one more. Sorry, I beg your pardon. We've got one more clip of the protest and then we've got the, the response from the minister, uh, the minister responsible uh, who was leading the debate in the parliament. Uh, to the vaccine injured. Does, does this government recognise that vaccine injuries happen? And I am a leader of the Scottish Vaccine Injured Group. It's time for this government to actually stand and look after the people that have been injured like myself. And I will remove myself. Here are some flyers. There is many ways that you, That's fine. There are many ways you can get in contact with John Mason. You know who we are. There is a leaflet. The Scottish Vaccine Injured Group will this government recognise us. Thank you. 
Okay, broadcasting back on. Minister, I'd ask you to resume. Um, there is quite a bit of time in hand, so I can give you the time back for that and the earlier interventions. Minister. Okay, thank you, Presiding Officer. And if I may turn to um, the, the people in the gallery first, um, I understand the issues that some are um, experiencing, and my sympathy goes out to those that are affected. It's important, I think, that health boards take these issues seriously and support patients in their management and recovery of their systems. Symptoms. Yes, maybe a, a slight, uh, a, a, a little bit more truth coming out there than she meant. It's not just the symptoms, it's the entire system that's affected in so many of the people who are suffering from uh, the effects of the vaccine. Now, so she did recognise and she did speak to them, although they've been ushered off by this point, but she did address them, which was good. And several other of the Others of the speakers during the debate also referenced the vaccine injured. Now, I'm convinced that that would not have happened had they not stood up and made their dignified protest in Parliament and had their voices heard directly, because no one else, I suspect, would have, would have mentioned on that day the vaccine injured. But because of what they did, several of the speakers recognised that there's an issue here. Now, whether the position of the minister that they are still to be excluded from the terms of reference of the Scottish COVID inquiry will stand um, can be sustained. Time will tell because that, that's a decision that really is highly questionable. Um, but the debate went on. And I've got a couple of examples here. Whilst there were some people in the parliament building who were ref referring to the vaccine injured because of the protest, the general tone was one of um, the politicians being overwhelmingly convinced. Essentially, almost it comes along across as brainwashed uh, by the benefits of the vaccines and the benefits of the science and everything's fine and it saved us from the lockdown and COVID was terrible and it was existential and the whole narrative. And this played out over and over and over again, one speaker after the other. So we've got a couple of examples. The first one is John Mason, MSP for the SNP ruling party, and he's got a few things to say about uh, risks and misinformation. And just the other week at committee, as we considered preparedness for a future pandemic, we heard how the hope is that in future vaccines could be produced in 100 days, obviously with testing time on top of that. Now, the last figure I heard was that over 20 million lives had been saved worldwide by the vaccines, and I'm sure it will be much higher by now. And on top of that, many others were protected from serious illness. Now, it's hard to have this debate without considering some of the misinformation and disinformation that has been around both during the pandemic and continuing today. One such issue was around transmission and whether the vaccines would or would not prevent it. But I well remember Jason Leach speaking to the committee on this subject and making the very simple and straightforward point that if fewer people actually had COVID, then logically fewer people would be passing it on and fewer other people would be catching it. So it was true that vaccination reduced transmission. I hardly know where to start, but let's just give you the highlights. One. No, John, the 100 days to produce a vaccine from the get-go includes the testing. You're wrong again. The 20 million lives saved, that's a computer model. That's not evidence. He can't tell the difference. Um, and on the disinformation, he cites Jason Leach. Jason Leach is the Scottish equivalent of Chris Whitty, right? And a monumentally dumb piece of failure of logic and reason that basically it's a tautology, if the vaccines work, the vaccines work. Is this actually what he's saying there? Now, the question that he's trying to address is people giving him factual evidence, statements, documents, um, cl um, clinical studies, and he's receiving a lot of these that say, no, the vaccine didn't prevent transmission. Here's the evidence. And he's pushing back with this nonsense about what Jason Leach said. Now, of course, we all remember uh, Janine Small, uh, we'll get this right, President of the International Development Market Section of Pfizer, speaking in the European Parliament. She was asked, before you released this to the market, before you rolled out the vaccine, had you tested to see if it did anything 
to control transmission. And she laughed and said, no, no, we had to move at the speed of science. Not sure what that meant, but that's what she said. In, in order to uh, find out what the markets was, were telling us, right? Now, I know what you're saying, but that, that confuses and conflates market signals with safety signals. And, but that's what she said. That's, that's how she expressed herself. But it was quite clear that the, there was no data to substantiate this position. And Mr. Um, the reported uh, line of reasoning from Jason Leach doesn't make up for that. So you see how much John Mason is struggling. He so wants to believe, and people are sending him actual information. And he's, he's desperate to refute it. But all he's got is false reasoning and a computer model and faith, belief. That's it. But it gets worse. Um, this next clip is Michael Mara. He's talking about uh, the scientists who saved us all from COVID. On Michael Mara. Thank you, President Officer, and thank you on behalf of the Labour Party and in the spirit of the motion brought by the government to the volunteers, the healthcare workers, the armed forces, and all of those involved uh, in the rollout of the COVID-19 uh, vaccines. It was uh, a collective endeavour of community in this country, I think, the unknown, uh, certainly in my lifetime um, and in many uh, of our lifetimes. Um, but it's not just about a reaction about what happened in those uh, weeks and months as this approach was, was rolled out. Um, we have had the long-term extraordinary benefit of our university and pharmaceutical research communities in this country, without whom we would never have had the vaccines in the first place. Uh, and that feat of what I would say was urgent and quiet ingenuity will, I believe, in time come to be compared to the cracking of Enigma in the Second World War. So Bletchley Park, eat your heart out. Um, what I would suggest we see on display there is something called scientism. That's pure belief. Right? What he's saying is, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he works for Pfizer. What do you think, uh, gentlemen, lady? Uh, well, I think maybe we should ask Debbie for a little bit of comment there. Do you know what, gentlemen? I'm a completely speechless. I'm completely speechless. Okay, well, Debbie, look, let's move quickly on in that case. Uh, and uh, well, you've got a, a, an award going to a, a UK nurse, uh, Helen yeah. Margaret Helen Shepherd. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna dwell on this segment at all. I'm just very uncomfortable with it. This, this was announced. The UK nurse Margaret Helen Shepherd wins Aster Guardian's Global Nursing Award 2023. It's like Aster Guardian's. I'm a nurse. I feel very uncomfortable with it. So I went to have a little look at Aster Guardian's and you can see that it's a very big sprawling um, campus and it's run or it's, it's been founded by Dr. Azad Mupin. He's an Indian healthcare entrepreneur and this is all tied up with the Asta Foundation. Um, and this award took place in the city of London. You can see they're based in Dubai. So I thought, well, who else is involved in this organization that I'm feeling uncomfortable with? And it wasn't long before I could see the fusion of the United Nations, the Royal College of Nurses, the WHO, the Red Cross, and it just validated why I was feeling so uncomfortable about these awards. So I just wanted to highlight it and um, let everybody know that um, it's probably not what it seems to be. And I don't think nurses should be um, involved in organisations like that personally. OK, thank you, Debbie, for that. Now, uh, let's uh, move on. If you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, please ever head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Uh, please, uh, as an alternative, pick something up at the UK Column shop, but do share the material you find on ukcolumn.org, ukcolumnextracts.co.uk and the other platforms. Um, so I, uh, we've got a quick advertisement here for... Uh, uh, Public Child Protection Wales, um, they're speaking out at Parliament Square on Wednesday the 17th of May, uh, and uh, that's today at 1pm. Uh, hopefully it's maybe a bit late for that, but nonetheless, speakers from across the UK, including uh, David Curtin, uh, Nigel Thorne, Dr Lisa Nolan, Lawrence Fox, and so on, uh, that's going on at the moment. 
so they're there until four o'clock this afternoon. So if you're in uh, London, uh, maybe you'd like to uh, pop along to that straight after the UK Column News or go now if you want. Uh, but please uh, also help them reach their £100,000 target. Um, so that is uh, sitting at, well, when that screenshot was taken, was uh, which was quite some time ago, £88,000. They do need your help, so please help if you possibly can. Now, a quick announcement that uh, this coming Friday, uh, beginning at 7pm uh, at uh, on the UK Column website and also the Children's Health Defence website, uh, there's uh, an event taking place uh, about the World Health Organization. Um, so Wolfgang Bodarg will be speaking. He's talking about uh, the groundwork of the World Health Organization, his experience with pandemics and the WHO. David Bell will be speaking about policymakers re rejecting the pandemic proposals. Uh, Dr. Sylvia Berendt talking about the amendments to the and the international health regulations. Uh, Philip Cruz uh, uh, talking about uh, why would we trust the World Health Organization to manage any pandemic. James Roguski will be speaking about on activism uh, and uh, uh, Meryl Nass will be speaking on One Health and the United Nations. There'll be a couple of panel discussions as well, and it'll all be hosted by Catherine Austin Fitz. Uh, so get uh, onto the UK Column website, 5 p.m., uh, sorry, 7 p.m. this Friday, uh, or Children's Health Defence, uh, if you want to watch that. Um, I'll just also mention, before we move on to the World Health, World Health Organization here, that tomorrow at 1 p.m., uh, ukcolumn.org slash live, as usual, uh, will be an interview with uh, Thomas Binder going out, uh, Dr. Thomas Binder. So uh, do have a look at that uh, if you don't know Thomas Binder's story. Uh, so Debbie, let's come on to the issue of the World Health Organization. Yeah, it's that time of the year. And uh, here we have the World Health uh, Assembly, which is taking place 21st to 30th of May. This is the 76th World Health Assembly. And why is it important? Well, for all the reasons that James Roguski uh, so often reports about international health regulations and uh, pandemic preparedness treaties. And so, yeah, this is the um, 76th World Health Assembly. But do you know who your representative is in whichever country you're in? Can you honestly sit there and say you know who your representative is? Because I didn't know who the UK representative was. So I went to have a look and um, you probably won't be surprised to know. But for the UK, our representative is Professor Christopher Whitty. Um, and it's interesting there because the dates, uh, it, it seems that he's ending his um, membership possibly this year. I don't know. Perhaps we'll be expecting resignation from Professor Whitty, maybe. But um, as you can see, the Russian Federation, I'm not going to embarrass myself by trying to pronounce. This is where I need the wonderful Mr. Alex Thompson. Um, but also the USA um, from 2022 to 2025 we're to be commun to be communicated. So I'm not quite sure who the American representative is, but um, as you can see, Professor Christopher Whitty is. But Pro Professor Whitty's been busy just recently, and of course he's he's all into this clean air and air pollution, which is what we've been warning about for absolutely ages. And of course, just recently he's brought out a story. Well, he hasn't brought out a story. The Mail brought out the story of Professor Whitty is now warning about a link between gas stoves and asthma. Now, apparently air pollution kills 36,000 Britons every year. I'm not quite sure where that evidence comes from. And I'm not quite sure where those Britons are. Perhaps they're in China. It, there doesn't seem to be any kind of um, clarification on that. Um, but it seems we're not safe anywhere now, not even indoors. So Professor Christopher Whitty is going to be very busy in the next few days. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Now let's move on to uh, Ukraine very briefly. Now, of course, we reported uh, uh, last week that uh, Britain was going to be sending uh, long-range uh, missiles to Ukraine. They're apparently there already. Uh, this is the uh, storm shadow. Uh, and uh, Admiral, uh, sorry, for, former Air Vice Marshal uh, Sean Bell uh, was speaking to Sky News a day or two ago about this missile, and I just thought it was listening. I'd very be very interested to hear what uh, what Alex's uh, views are on this, uh, because uh, well, he had something to say about the age of what we're sending, uh, and uh, well, what we might have done with them if we hadn't been sending them to Ukraine. Let's have a listen. But at two million pound a pop, mm. you know they're quite expensive. The reality here: these are twenty five years old, though, 
And the reality is that UK is looking to upgrade them, but it won't upgrade all the 902 that are available. So we actually have a whole load of our stockpile that is available for either disposal or use, mm. and the Ukrainians now need something. So it's a, it's a marriage made in heaven in a way. So Alex, it's a marriage made in heaven because we had a bunch of missiles. We bought a thousand of them initially. We used an idea of them. Uh, we've got a bunch of them sitting there, 25 years old. Uh, we're going to have to scrap them if we don't use them uh, and or dispose of them in some way. And obviously, sending them off to Ukraine is potentially cheaper than actually uh, disposing of them properly. Air Vice Marshal Bell assuming the perspective of an accountant rather than a warrior. Uh, we know that at General Admiral Marshal level, flag officer level, uh, British officers for quite some years now have been very closely controlled by His Majesty's Treasury. And uh, when it comes to the renewal of the big ticket items, particularly the nuclear weapons, the nuclear deterrent for the Royal Navy, uh, we have had repeated intelligence that admirals have called into the Treasury and told, now this is what you'll be doing and saying, and, and we'll be directing the government whip and the opposition whip uh, to make the House of Commons vote accordingly. So all stitched up there, but a very unfortunate turn of phrase for the Air Vice Marshal there. Um, is he proud to be sending obsolescent, even redundant equipment out east? The storm shadows, I think, have were admitted even during the Syria striking of a few years ago uh, as obsolescent. Uh, you'll recall that the less than delightful lady who was then our permanent representative to the United Nations in New York uh, drawled the phrase storm shadow when she was uh, announcing with you know uh, all, all the enthusiasm of reading out a shopping list what it was that we were uh, doing to batter the, Assyri the Syrians into submission. And th I remember that the military comment at the time was storm shadows were no match for uh, uh, modern equipment on the other side. But rather unfortunate, isn't it? Uh, but the corruption just gets worse in Ukraine. It's reached the head of the judiciary. At least that would be one way of describing the gentleman's name. This is Sivolod Knazev. Now, all the names involved in this story have unfortunate literal meanings. So Vikna here, first of all, is one of the Ukrainian outlets that's, we're just including this one for the picture, uh, pointing out that the immaculately goateed Mr. Knazev, who until yesterday was the chairman of the Supreme Court of Ukraine, uh, got busted by the Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine uh, with $2.7 million in bribes. That's a small fraction, uh, I think, recovered from a lockup, although the, the picture of the divan makes it look like it was recovered from the house, perhaps, um, which, which was his ill-gotten gains, uh, allegedly. His name literally means the omnipotent knight. Well, perhaps he isn't. Um, we go for more detail here to New Voice, another Ukrainian outlet, uh, which leads here in the quotation at the top of the headline with this phrase which you can translate as, let's just say I'm on your side. Uh, this comes from phone taps by the Ukrainian Anti-Corruption Bureau in which Knyazev is talking to an, uh, a, a, an associate within the court, undisclosed name, who says, well, the oligarch Konstantin Zhivago, there's the second unfortunate name, it makes one think of Pasternak's novel, but uh, Zhivago here is an, an oligarch who has lost his 40% share in a mining complex in Poltava in central Ukraine because of a, a judgment 20 years ago. Would you mind overturning the uh, the decision when it comes up shortly in the Grand Chamber of the Supreme Court? And uh, um, Sivolod Knazev said, well, we can talk about that. Uh, let's arrange tranches of bribes. And uh, I'm not making that up. So here is what, if you put that on screen again, uh, in, a, in an auto translation, uh, what was uh, released by the Anti-Corruption Bureau. So a full year ago, just after the war began, an agreement between the shareholder, that would be a reference to the uh, oligarch uh, Zhivago, uh, a lawyer as go-between. Uh, the sad thing is he seems to be the chair of the Lawyers Association of Ukraine. Uh, it's always difficult in Ukrainian to know whether it's a V or an A because there's no definite article in Russian or Ukrainian. But it looks like the go-between was actually the head of the Lawyers Association of Ukraine and uh, Knyazev, the head of the Supreme Court. Uh, the meeting was postponed on the case uh, at that time when they were getting their heads together. A month later, April 2022, uh, the court decided in the interest of the businessmen in a session in the Grand Chamber presided over by Knyazev. First of May last year, Knyazev, according to the phone taps, said, let's split the proceeds. And two days later, the first tranche of a $1.35 million bribe came through. And you can double that amount because that's what the Bureau seems to have found. Um, more detail still from uh, Zirkalonia Djeli, uh, the, the Mirror of the Week, another Ukrainian outlet, 
which is reporting on uh, uh, the repercussions of this for the Ukrainian justice system, and uh, most particularly in an update that they posted. Um, the Anti-Corruption Bureau said in the bold type that's on screen at the moment that they were going to have to investigate no fewer than a further 18 judges, not regular common or garden Ukrainian judges, judges at the Supreme Court of Ukraine, which is quite a large court, as you can imagine, 18 of them because they may have had their fingers in the same pie. And, and although Knezhev, uh, was uh, had, had a, a, um, a unanimous vote of revulsion and no confidence against him by his fellow members of the Supreme Court yesterday, uh, so if I understand correctly, he is now as of today no, long, no longer the head of the Supreme Court, he can't be fired as a judge except by the, uh, the Council on Justice. So that would be an external decision. But as it is, it's a decapitation, as ZN reports it, because for the last year and a half, uh, Sevolod Knesev has had no deputy. So it seems there is neither a head nor a deputy head of the Supreme Court of Ukraine in wartime when they're having to decide on all manner of uh, war-related matters. And just to round this off, uh, the National Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine may now be the hero of the hour, uh, and their own head has an unfortunate name, uh, Simeon uh, Krivonos, literally Simon the Crooked Nose. Uh, but uh, the first uh, inauguration of that bureau was just after the coup in 2014, about which you can read full detail on ukcolumn.org, for example, by reading um, the uh, the article on whether Ukraine has a neo-Nazi problem. We have two articles on that, actually. Uh, but let's just remind ourselves uh, in this brief clip what Glenn Beck was pointing out at his famous chalkboard to an American audience in 2019. And he is re referring to five years earlier what happened when the coup uh, installed a new government uh, in Ukraine and the bureau was set up. And then because they're so corrupt, we mandate to this corrupt country, that they start a national anti-corruption bureau of Ukraine, because we can't trust the guys in the masks. A national anti-corruption bureau of Ukraine. It's fantastic. And you know who their partner is? Us, of course. <laughs> We're not corrupt at all. So the guy who was uh, tapped to be the first director of the bureau is this guy, Artem, how do you say his name? Sitnik. Okay, he's the first director. And what's great is because he is now in charge of anti-corruption, he now has a direct line to the administration to talk about anything, anything the Ukrainians might dig up. Now, Beck was saying even as far back as 2011, that Soros's game, this is three years before the first of the recent coups in Ukraine, uh, Soros's game was to install anti-corruption figures who answered to Soros and to the United States, for which he got heavily rounded upon. But I think time has borne out what he's saying. Uh, so all of this juicy detail of the corruption right to the literal top of the judicial system in Ukraine uh, is something that will be well known to the USA. Thank you, Alex. Uh, now let's uh, move on to arms control. And uh, we'll just to remind everybody, one of the arms control treaties uh, is the Conventional Armed Forces in Europe Treaty. Uh, and uh, so this is the Arms Control Association. They give a definition of uh, what it's all about if you want to go and read it. But basically, it was an agreement between uh, the Soviet states and the West uh, that they would maintain uh, roughly equivalent levels of, of conventional weapons as well. You know, uh, we've got other treaties for nuclear weapons. But anyway, last week, uh, Putin signed an order. Uh, for Russia to completely withdraw from the uh, conventional forces in Europe treaty. Uh, now, Russia has been, uh, has effectively suspended its participation in this treaty since 2007, uh, but this uh, is a complete withdrawal. Uh, Sergei Rybakov was the man that was rolled out to make a comment on this, uh, and he said uh, the situation around the conventional, uh, for, uh, the conventional uh, forces in Europe treaty is paradoxical. The old treaty concluded in 1990 has long ceased to correspond to reality. It still features, for example, the Baltic military district of the USSR. At the same time, the agreement has, sorry, the agreement on its adaptation uh, signed in 1999 never entered into force because the United States and other NATO countries, uh, well, didn't, uh, or they set preconditions to it and so on is what he went on to say. In parallel, he said the alliance expanded to the east while circumventing treaty restrictions uh, by suspending the CFE treaty in 2007 rather than withdrawing from it. Uh, we, the Russians, left the door open for restoring the viability of the conventional arms control regime 
uh, the countries of the West have had uh, more than enough time to show common sense, is what he said. Now, uh, of course, that then follows uh, what happened in February this year when the Russians uh, withdrew from uh, the new SMART uh, arrangements because they were querying or at least challenging whether the United States was uh, reporting uh, everything that they should have been reporting and so on. So they uh, were basically pretty unhappy that, that the West was not uh, abiding by the terms of the treaty. So what's the point of being part of it anyway? So, uh, Alex, obviously, um, you know, this the conventional forces treaty, uh, the conventional forces in Europe treaty hasn't really had any role to play since 2007. But, but this is just the fact that the Russians have formally withdrawn from it fully um, is just representative of, of the further breakdown of relations between uh, the West and them. These are desperately long-term and unsexy things, aren't they? Uh, limitations on conventional forces, let alone the various ranges of nuclear forces, but one after the other, starting with the most dramatic and going back to the, the most workaday now, the conventional forces. Both sides, I think it's incontrovertible, led by the United States by refusing to re, uh, uh, re-sign or to prolong these, these treaties, have withdrawn from them, which means that fair game. You know, uh, under these treaties, you have mutual inspection regimes and other kinds of security guarantees. And you don't have to be a cheerleader for the Kremlin to uh, endorse or understand the point they've been making repeatedly in uh, in the geopolitical diplomacy, which is that uh, changing the balance of power in security terms is the other half of the question in international law when you're changing alliances and even the sovereignty of units, right down to controversial ones like Kosovo or, or Donbass, or Don, Donetsk rather, um, because uh, the West hammers on that they have self-determination and have been genocided allegedly. The Russians will always say the other half of the equation, and this isn't their wishful thinking, this is in the international treaties, uh, is that you don't do anything which upsets the balance of power in Europe. I thought we would have learned that lesson in 1914. Uh, well, you would think so. You would think so. Okay, thank you. Now let's uh, move on then uh, to this, Debbie, uh, because the the Russians, or at least the Moscow Times, reporting that Russia is to build a migrant village for conservative American expats. Yeah, this uh, this story really caught my attention because um, they go on to say uh, that Russian authorities will launch construction of a village outside Moscow for conservative-minded Americans and Canadians next year, the state-run RIA Novosti News Agency reported Thursday. Um, I mean, this is quite phenomenal. Uh, this is for people, they, they don't, you don't have to have any connections with Russia at all. If you simply, I mean, they get, they say, I can't, I'm so sorry, Alex. Um, Timur Besalangorov says that the reason is propaganda of radical values and that many Americans feel that they don't want to live in the kind of society that they are living at the moment. Today, they have 70 genders and who knows what will come next. R.I.A. Novosti quoted Bezalangorov as saying, echoing President Vladimir Putin's frequently deployed grievances against Western countries' comparative g- gender freedom. I mean, this hasn't yet been publicly announced, um, but I mean, what can I say? I mean, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be very interested in if this does happen and how they apply to, to possibly move there. I don't know what everybody else's thoughts are, but I think there's going to be quite a lot of applications. Um, well, Alex, uh, my first two thoughts on this are, first of all, I'm not sure that if I was a Westerner uh, heading off to Russia to live, um, I would be wanting to go into a village like this because uh, you're effectively putting a big target on your head uh, for the West. But the other point here is that, of course, that when when uh, people go into communities like this of their own kind, shall we say, uh, it becomes much, much harder to integrate into the society that you're uh, moving into. And of course, you never really learn the language. It is precisely what people who watch the free media have by and large criticised immigrants for over the decades is ghettoizing when they come to a Western country. But uh, not just British, but other English-speaking nationalities are notorious for doing this when they move abroad. So I heartily concur. These are not farmers. Uh, Traditional-minded Americans and Canadians, as, as billed here, might make one think that they are the kind who go and homestead or um, 
uh, or have a small holding in the Far East for which you can get free acres of land in Russia in the right deserted areas. Uh, but no, these will be in Podmoskovye, in the um, immediate environs of Moscow. They will be, like many middle-class Russians, if they manage to make it over, commuting into Moscow for office jobs by the look of it. Uh, so it is going to uh, certainly uh, be to the detriment of the wives and children learning Russian uh, language or culture if they're there. Now, I went through to the uh, source which the Moscow Times had reported on somewhat skeptically because it's run by Dirk Sauer, a self-confessed Dutch Marxist who used to be a gun runner for the IRA, actually, by his own admission. Uh, I went through to the RA Novosti uh, state-aligned um, uh, news uh, uh, news release itself to find out what more was being said, because there always is more. Uh, that image is not necessarily the house being constructed, uh, which will house an American or Canadian conservative, but just an illustrative stock photo. This is the bit that caught my eye, and well done, Debbie, for getting Timur Beslangurov's name pretty much right. Uh, it sounds like an ethnic Ossetian, interestingly. He's a migration lawyer in his day, day job, working for an organization called Vista, but there is an event coming up which you'll see at the bottom of what I've put on screen at the moment, which is the 11th St. Petersburg International Legal Conference or Forum, which I think is an annual event, certainly a recurring one. And RIA Novosti, uh, being a state-aligned um, news outlet, is an official partner, which they're being transparent about there. So they have in, in, interviewed Vistangurov as part of a publicity drive for this lawyers' meeting. What really leapt out at me, though, was the paragraph above that. And this is quoting Bieslan Gurov again and saying, um, as he tells us, among those desiring to migrate are some traditional Catholics, and we know from other paragraphs these are North American Catholics, traditional Catholics who, quote, quote begins from Bieslan Gurov, very strongly believe in the prophecy that Russia will become the last Christian country standing in the world. Now, this is, takes us into a third secret of Fatima territory, and I don't want to get prophetic on the news, uh, but it is interesting that the Russians are tickling the fancy of, I think I can say without any ill will, some of the more credulous strands of uh, Western traditional Christianity and other conservatives in the West, uh, and telling them what they want to hear in order to get a nice, lucrative uh, middle-class um, migration wave, which will moreover be containable if they all live in their own villages under FSB surveillance, of course they will be, um, and which will uh, provide immense propaganda value. And the Russians have been honest enough in the form of Vyslangorov here to say this, that it will be a propaganda coup. Uh, yes, indeed. Okay, thank you both. Uh, now let's come back uh, to the UK. And well, on the 8th of February, we, uh, we talked about uh, this on the, on the news programme on the 8th of February, if you want to go back and watch the full report. Uh, this was the uh, release, the consultation paper from the Bank of England and HM Treasury on the digital pound, a new form of money for households and businesses. And there's been a steady stream of emails in from UK Common members over the weeks since then, uh, asking us to remind everybody that this consultation is ongoing and uh, expires, uh, um, well, imminently. So uh, anyway, uh, let's have a, just remind ourselves about this very briefly. So. They were talking about cash payments having declined and so on. Therefore, we need a new uh, digital currency. They're talking about it being a public-private partnership, the uh, wallets holding digital pounds offered by the private sector. But don't worry, because it's all going to be privacy protected, like for cards and bank accounts, but not anonymous. Uh, and yet, later on in the document, they are talking or they're trying to claim that uh, users' holdings of digital pounds are recorded anonymously. Now, remember, this is a, a global uh, initiative, although the UK is attempting to, to be out in front with it, at least. Uh, and if we remember that uh, the head of the Bank for International Settlements saying that the financial system is shifting under our feet, it's time for the time has passed for central banks to get going with this. And uh, this consultation, of course, is part of that. Uh, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about potentially wholesale central bank digital currencies, which means for tra bank transfers between the banks themselves and retail central bank digital currencies, which means actual, uh, well, tokens that you can spend, uh, apparently, um, uh, in, in the shops and so on. Um, Rishi Sunak, just remind you, saying that we want to renew the City of London's position, the UK's position as the world's preeminent financial system. Uh, and just remind everybody also that this is part and parcel of uh, Mark Carney's attempt at uh, a whole economy transition uh, around the world. Uh, we also pointed out uh, that the Bank of uh, that the the House of Lords had produced a report 
on central bank digital currencies. They called them a solution in search of a problem. And the financial system believes there is a problem because there's a recognition within the financial system that it's in big trouble. And therefore, uh, they have, uh, they, they're very keen to see this, uh, this type of initiative move forward. Um, but this is really what it's about, I think, uh, because the UK would very much like to see uh, the government and the Bank of England deriving the most benefit now by taking action to shape global standards. This is really the only uh, case that the House of Lords could see uh, for CBDCs uh, at this time. So uh, the digital pound, a new form of money for households. Uh, the deadline of responses is the 7th of June, 2023. There's still time to, to take part in it, a few weeks anyway, uh, and uh, the URL is there. So we'll just remind everybody from time to time between now and then that this is going on. Um, now, Alex, let's come back to you and uh, education in Europe. There has been a clutch of further um, crackdowns on the freedom of schooling, upbringing and education in Western Europe, which I think is worth a segment. First of all, from Antwerp, the city's uh, local paper of record, the Gazette van Antwerpen, is reporting that the Belgian socialists, more specifically the Flemish socialists, because the country is completely split politically into uh, self-governing provinces, the Flemish Socialist Party, um, which has relaunched itself with many new names. The, the latest name is Forout, uh, which means forward, but they used to be just be known as the SP, the Socialist Party, um, have announced that they wish, as part of their manifesto pledges, to oblige every child to go to creche and to kindergarten or nursery, however you want to describe it, preschool. Uh, Forout, the party name, uh, is described here in the headline as having a striking plan um, and which is, you know, described at the bottom of the article, even described as uh, as eyebrow raising, but they're unapologetic for it. Um, the child uh, or the children would be offered 133 um, days of uh, daycare a year. So that's taking them out of the family for that time. And you cannot say no as a parent. So the um, party leader, we're, it's definitely a name for unfortunate or, or poetic names today because the party leader of the Flemish Socialists um, is called Mr. Rousseau. You couldn't make it up. Uh, look up Rousseau's view of children and child rearing and how he practiced uh, what he preached. But the modern day Rousseau is saying that uh, he wants to introduce uh, something that Belgium doesn't even have from schooling age onwards at the moment, uh, Schulpflicht, which means obligatory schooling. Only Germany has a Schulpflicht at the moment. So he wants to go straight from obligation on the parents to educate to obligation for three-year-olds to go to school so that every child will go to kindergarten. And he says that his aim is to make sure every child in Flanders, which is a very immigrant-rich part of, uh, of Europe now, will learn proper Dutch. Uh, Rousseau says it's vitally important to pull them out of poverty and the parents will have to go along with it. And in the second quotation here, uh, Corner Rousseau says, it's all about giving children equal opportunities. Um, he says that research, of which he's making a god, this is scientism again, research shows that the first six years are crucial in child development. Now, it's a shame David isn't here because early childhood and adverse childhood experiences was, a, was an absolute mantra in Scotland, which David helped dismantle a few years ago. But that's what Rousseau is now picking up. As usual, a continental Johnny come lately to a game we've already seen through. So he says we have to intervene. Uh, it will benefit the whole of society, but the child's interests have to be crucial. Nothing about parents. Uh, they're not involved at all. Um, Germany, of course, is the notorious thou shalt not homeschool uh, country. It's in a very slender bracket of countries together with North Korea and Sweden and more latterly France and the Netherlands to some extent, which say you mustn't homeschool. Um, Every other country in the world, including other communist countries, allow you. But the Daily Wire has picked up on a German Christian school taking a case against the uh, de facto banning of uh, anything that isn't state compliant by the judiciary. Uh, what they're, they're quoting here, not the, uh, the school itself, which is in southwestern Germany, but they're quoting a Baptist pastor in Frankfurt, Riemenschneider, as saying that even though Many German Christians do accept school attendance, not all, as being compatible with their faith. The situation has changed fundamentally in the last three years. Think of Drag Queen Story Hour, um, which is making its way to the continent now, certainly to Belgium and the Netherlands. Um, 
So everything that we're seeing with the Welsh uh, campaigning, the public child protection is relevant to the Germans. And they have no way out because they go to jail or lose their children if they don't send their children to school. So Riemann Schneider says, in recent times, the German state has increasingly included ideologies in the curriculum that contradict the teachings of the Bible or whatever else uh, your traditional convictions may be. It's not just Christians who are affected. Daily Wire links through to the uh, press release by the legal campaign which is taking it on, ADF International. This will all be in the show notes. Uh, what's striking here uh, is that the school in question, run by an association, has been shut down by this bureaucratic means. And this could come to Britain. You will not be able to open any new schools the administrative courts who made this decision acknowledged that the education was satisfactory. In fact, other parts of the press release draw attention to their superior performance. And this is a mixed model. So the whole thing about this school is there are days in school, but there's also online days. But the administrative courts criticized the school because it, uh, since it was hybrid, there was no little socializing between the, uh, the, the students, the pupils, and the domestic courts, not the education ministry or the constitution, the courts have ruled that children must be allowed to influence each other for good and ill to a ex certain extent. Uh, otherwise, you'll get what they call parallel societies. So it's uh, the, the backdoor uh, obligation of making sure that children drag each other down to the lowest common denominator and that they're filled with and share with each other uh, the notions that they have been taught, such as you can change gender. Uh, a, a legal academic quoted, Dr. Billman, says that international law makes it quite clear that parents are the first and foremost authority for educating their children, but the German state is undermining this in overt violation of freedom of education. So they're going to Strasbourg, right back to the Council of Europe, as we saw at the top of the hour, the same institution. Um, in Switzerland, the canton of Neuchâtel has become the first to ban conversion therapies. Uh, reported by Evangelique Point Info. So it's, this was a 99 to 1 vote in their cantonal legislature. Only one of the 100 deputies in that cantonal legislature voted against this. Uh, so this specifically includes now uh, counselling people to return to the, the, to the sex in which they were born, uh, praying for them, advising them, whatever it may be, responding to their anguished queries that could land you in jail now. So this is spreading. It's no longer just an Anglo-Saxon problem. And the neighbouring French-speaking canton of Jura, also in Switzerland, it may do the same thing. Um, okay, thank you, Alex. Now, Debbie, sticking with sort of uh, globalist uh, policies, uh, we've got Gateway Pundit here. Uh, and uh, let's see, what are they saying? Uh, King Charles and the globalists set meeting for September to plot to accelerate goals of UN Agenda 2030 and complete digitization of humanity. So clearly, uh, King Charles uh, um, continuing with his uh, World Economic Forum interests. Yes, he is indeed. It seems that they're so worried that um, their sustainable development goals and their great reset has been delayed or it's not going quite as well as they thought. They're going to hold another summit and King Charles is going to be going. And of course, he's just announced that he's going to Israel as well. So I just wanted to highlight that uh, in the summer, there'll be another um, World Economic Forum summit to look forward to. Um, but meanwhile, back in this country, um, it seems as though we're going to be following in Australia's footsteps and we could be um, testing people to see if they're too sleepy to drive. Um, so they've been following the National Road Safety Action Plan 2023 to 2025 in Australia. Um, and it seems to be like a, a kind of a breathalyzer that they're going to be using. But um, it's, it's very interesting because um, on the patient information leaflet of a sleeping tablet called Tamazipam, it says that um, whilst it can affect your ability to drive, it's not going to be committing, you're not going to be committing an offence if you take tamazepam, which is a sleeping tablet, if the medicine has been prescribed to treat a medical or dental problem, or if you've taken it according to the instructions given by the prescriber. So I'm not quite sure how a breathalyzer is going to, is going to work. Um, but staying on the theme of roads and what's going on or what's being proposed by Labour, it seems that um, this MP... Um, you can see her there on the right in green. Um, Rachel Maskell is campaigning for 10 mile an hour maximum, I have to say that's maximum, speed limit near homes. Um, I mean, it's been dismissed as bonkers by the Conservative Party. However, 
um, with the polls at the moment and Labour looking as though they may get elected next time, it's what's to come of the future. I can't quite see how 10 miles an hour, to be honest, is going to help carbon emissions, in inverted commas. Um, but um, yeah, that's what we could be looking forward to. And I just wanted to um, end on a really lovely, lovely story that has nothing to do with the COVID agenda, nothing to do with the globalists. It's just a beautiful story of genuine friendship. And it involves an amazing um, rugby, two amazing rugby players, um, Rob Burrows, who was diagnosed with motor neuron in 2019. His friend, Kevin Sinfield, and you know, please look at the video there's the most amazing video and it's one uh. probably need a tissue because ken sinfield has raised more than eight million for his best friend rob burrows and he's been taking him on marathons all over the country and on this particular marathon he took him out of his wheelchair just before he crossed the line carried him over and kissed him and you can hear from my voice I don't think there'll be a dry eye in the house if you watch this video because it's just pure friendship, love, kindness and compassion. And I think we all need to show a bit more of that, don't you? Uh, indeed. Okay, well, I think we should uh, end on that note then. Thank you very much, Debbie. Thank you to Alex as well and David uh, for earlier in the programme. We'll be back in a couple of minutes uh, with some extra uh, and uh, we'll see you then, hopefully, if you're a UK column member. And if you're not, uh, we'll be back well, remember the Thomas Binder interview 1 p.m. Uh, tomorrow uh, and then UK Column News on Friday uh, as usual. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.